0: Please open your copies of the inerrant word of God to 1 Peter chapter 5. As we draw ever closer to our conclusion, or to the conclusion of our study of 1 Peter, as we began last week, we're spending a brief period of time considering the spiritual battle that we must fight against our adversary. Satan because as we pass through our time of humbling God is at work for our good but Satan is at work for our ill and we must prepare to face him and to fight him let's read our text 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 through 10 be sober minded will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Last week, we introduced ourselves, ourselves to this topic and this theme by focusing on understanding our enemy, Satan himself, a fallen angel, fallen angel his nature, his history, his dominion, and Satan as our Adversary, And that's where we concluded Satan as our adversary, one who is actively seeking to harm us and hinder us, one who is actively seeking to destroy and devour us. Well, what we're going to do this morning is to focus on some of the devices or the methods that Satan uses to attack us as our adversary so that we can see them more clearly and avoid falling into Those traps. And as I mentioned last week, I want to mention again and repeat that in so doing, I'm drawing directly uh, and unashamedly from Thomas Brooks' book, which many of you have have read and known, entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, Thomas Brooks was a Congregationalist minister in London in the 17th century. He lived from 1606 to 1680, and he's buried in that wonderful place known as Bunhill fields in 1652 he published a book entitled precious remedies against satan's devices and it's been uh, precious to christians ever since because it contains the teaching of the scripture but it's expressed in a way that is so very relatable it's kind of like when you read pilgrim's progress and everyone can see their own life in pilgrim's progress that's why everyone connects to it so easily precious remedies against satan's devices is just like that where you read the devices and you say, I've seen this, I've experienced this, I've fallen in this. So this is ancient wisdom, but it's not Brooks' wisdom. It's the wisdom of the scriptures that the Lord gifted him to write so well. Uh, like I said, printed in 1652, and just a little tidbit of interesting information, the printer, Matthew Simmons, was the same printer who printed our first confession of faith uh, in 1644, because he worked in London, and. It's all in the same place. Well, I want to set the stage for what we're studying by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a a premise, a foundation for the sermon. Look at verses 9 through 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that, here's the key verse, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So notice in verse Nine, that Paul is concerned that the Corinthians be obedient. And then in verse 11, he is saying that in order for you to be obedient, you need to be sure that you are not outwitted by Satan. And in order to not be outwitted by Satan, you must not be ignorant, or you must be aware of his designs or his devices, his methods, his manner, the way in which he seeks to outwit us because he is wise and, wily. and as Christians, when Paul says, we are not ignorant of his designs, maybe we are. Perhaps we are ignorant of the devices of Satan and they are necessary knowledge for being obedient and living the Christian life in a faithful way. You can turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're turning there, just remember what Peter said in chapter 2, verse 11. He said, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is a soul war. And Satan is uh, a subtle and a wise enemy. And we need to know his designs and devices. We can sum them up in two headings. Satan as the deceiver and Satan as the accuser. And so when I prepared the sermon, that was the sort of the first major heading, Satan as deceiver, then Satan as accuser. However, In the Spanish ministry, we only covered Satan, the deceiver. So this morning, we will look at four devices that Satan uses to deceive and to entice the soul to sin. Satan is a deceiver. The scriptures describe him as a deceiver and an accuser. When he can't deceive you, he'll accuse you. But we're focusing right now on Satan as the deceiver. And these are four devices that he uses to draw the soul to sin, to entice us, to trap us, to trick us. He's been a liar from the beginning, says John in 1 John. He's a deceiver. He did this in Eden, and he's done it till today, distorting reality, twisting the truth. And I encourage you to read Thomas Brooks' book because he has many more than the four that I will present to you this morning uh, in somewhat of my own terms, but also drawing from from him. Number one. Number one. The first device that Satan uses to entice the soul to sin as deceiver is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the bait and hide the hook. With this method, Satan wants you to think that sin is good and pleasing, that if you sin, you will be happy. He wants you to see goodness in sin because the soul and the body is drawn to goodness. We are drawn to that which we perceive to be good. And so Satan makes sin appear good as bait. Bait, by definition, is appealing to the one whom you are baiting. Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden that if she ate of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that her eyes would be opened and that she would be like God. He says, if you eat this, there is goodness for you. God has told you not to eat this, but he's denying you a good. He's, he's depriving you of something good. Take it, it's good for you. And the scriptures give us Eve's opinion. It says that, that she considered this and that she thought the apple looks good for eating as well as it's good to make one wise, so there was a certain appealing nature to her body, the, or we don't know if it was an apple, but the fruit looked good. Some have said it was an almond tree, so it would be almonds, but probably not almonds. There are reasons they said that, but it doesn't matter. She, the, it was appealing to the body. That looks tasty. But it was appealing to the soul. This will make me wise. I, I'll be better for having eaten this if I eat it. So it's it's bait, it appears to be good, but Satan the deceiver hides a lie in, in an apparent truth. It's, it's not actually a truth. The truth is that there is pleasure in the sin, but there's a lie. The bait is sweet, and that's why it's so appealing and so enticing, because in many sins there is a very real and a very true pleasure. Think about certain sins with me, such as violence, violent men. Not that men only are violence, but in acts of violence, there is a pleasure of power. There's a pleasure of satisfaction, of overpowering someone else and being the stronger party and having dominion. Men who are violent take pleasure in their violence. They take pleasure in the fear that it engenders in those who see their violence. In immorality of all forms, there is a pleasure. There is a pleasure for the body. There is a pleasure in the soul as well. If you think about lying, there is a certain also kind of power, like outward violence, but a different kind of power of manipulation. I have... I have created a new reality for this person by lying to them. I am controlling what they think. I'm controlling what they perceive. Those who lie also have a certain pleasure of success. I did it, I deceived them. Those who steal have an exhilaration and an excitement in the sin of theft. I didn't work for this and now I have it. I didn't have to do anything but the act of stealing to get this. And also the satisfaction of they don't know. I I did it. The heist was successful. We have movies that literally praise this kind of thing. A heist movie where everyone's excited at the end. The Proverbs say that stolen bread is sweet. Even covetousness, which is in, in the heart, has a pleasure as you imagine what it would be like to have that thing that you don't have. You imagine that thing for your body or you imagine that thing for your soul. If only I had this. And so in your mind, in your heart, in the act of coveting, you are pleasing yourself by imagining the pleasure you would have if you had that thing. You see, there is a kind of pleasure, a species of pleasure in sin. All baits are tasty. And that is the one truth that's in what Satan presents to us. But there's a greater truth. And that is that the bait contains a hook. A hook that is very painful and is difficult to remove and stays in long after the sweetness of sin has disappeared. That pleasure that we just spoke about that entices the soul or the body to sin, how long does that last? Mere moments. How long does the pain of the hook in the cheek, how long does that last? It endures for a very, very long time, if not for the rest of our lives. And so Satan presents the bait and hide the hook there is, this is sin, but it looks good, it looks pleasing, and there is a kind of pleasure in it. So how do we resist this? How can we overcome this device of Satan when he tempts us with pleasure by presenting the bait and hiding the hook? Well, the first thing to do is simply to stay away from the bait. Stay away from the bait. If you're not swimming in the pond where Satan fishes, you won't see the bait nor will you take it because it's not there and you're not there. If you know there is temptation for me in such and such a thing, you have to stay away from it. Man, how do I, how do I not fall into this, into this sin that entices me when you know what it is that entices you? You stay away from it. The second thing you have to do is to have a heart hatred for evil. So that even if something has pleasure, you see beyond that, and you hate what that thing is overall. You'd say that thing in itself has a degree of pleasure, but that thing overall, in totality, is forbidden. It is unholy, it is wicked, it is vile, and I hate it. Yes, my body and my soul may love the, the glimpse and the mere moment of pleasure that that thing would give to me, but I hate what it is in its wholeness. But Satan wants you to only see the bait. But we say, I hate the bait because it has a hook in it. If there was no hook, it wouldn't be sin. And then you could enjoy that thing to the glory of God. But you have to hate sin such that whatever pleasure there may be in that thing, you do hate it because it's a lie. It's a fleeting and a false pleasure that doesn't last. And whatever pleasure you do receive then becomes a lash for you. Why did I give in to something so simple and short and fleeting? So that what was pleasing is now, what was sweet is now bitter. So the first device that Satan uses to entice us, which we must resist is that he presents the bait and hides the hook. And we acknowledge there is pleasure, a kind of pleasure, in sins. But we also acknowledge that there is a hook and a horrible bitterness and a wickedness. And we must hate evil with our hearts because God has forbidden it and declared it to be wicked. Secondly, the second device of Satan, the deceiver, to entice the soul to sin is, number two... To paint vice with virtue's colors. To paint vice with virtue's colors. Again, the deceiver wants you to think that sin is good because we're drawn to good or what we perceive to be good. And so here, Satan presents sin as good, not the first one was sin as as pleasing to the body and soul, but this one, Satan presents sin as good by calling it that which is good when it's not really good. So what we think of as virtue, he says that this vice is actually that virtue. It it makes more sense as soon as we explain it. So for example, liberty is good. God has given us liberty in all things lawful or indifferent. And so God has given us a good world full of good things to eat and to drink and to enjoy. Many pleasures that in the in and of themselves are innocent and good and we have liberty to enjoy those things that god has given to us and indeed to use liberty is maturity it's it's actually strength it's it's good to use your liberty it's good to have that maturity and so we see it as a virtue of christian maturity to use the liberty that god has given to us there's the virtue But Satan will take the colors of that virtue, and he will paint a vice with those colors so that what you think is virtuous is actually vicious. What you think is a virtue is actually a vice. So in the name of liberty, we turn it into license. And enjoying a a drink such as alcohol, liberty says, I can have more. I can have more. Liberty says, I can have more until you reach the point of drunkenness but how did you get to this point of drunkenness? Because you kept justifying more in the name of liberty. The same thing would be the case in gluttony. I have the freedom to eat good things, but I kept eating in the name of liberty, and I kept eating, I'm going to eat this to the glory of God, and I'm going to eat that to the glory of God, and I'm going to eat this to the glory of God. You can bless those things all you want with prayers, but gluttony is a sin. Just as drunkenness is a sin, but many people justify those things in the name of of supposed liberty. But they're actually betraying and abusing liberty. We're not free to sin. We don't have liberty to sin. We're liberty to use lawful things lawfully. And how many young men do you see who have come from a more fundamentalist background and they they enter into the reformed faith and they see the doctrine of Christian liberty more clearly and then they give themselves over to, to hard drinking. I'm not, I'm not saying we cannot enjoy something that is stronger than, than other alcoholic beverages, but you know what I'm talking That In the name of Christian liberty, because I'm a reformed Christian, they'll drink to excess and even drunkenness and almost rejoice in it like they're the strong Christian when the fact is they're the ones giving in to the temptations of Satan. It's not maturity to abuse liberty. That's actually the opposite. It's immaturity to fail to see where the line is. To not use lawful things lawfully, but to use lawful things unlawfully. Or, under the name of liberty, we are lazy. We say, well, the Lord has has freed me from such and such a duty or such and such a thing. I have have liberty. I don't have to do anything, so I'll just do nothing. Another way in which vice is painted with virtues colors would be uh, the man who gives himself so much to his work that he's not a husband or a father. But what's the virtue? I work hard for my family. I work hard for my family. I'm at the office all the time for my family. You see, they're, they're trying to convince themselves this is a virtue to work, 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 work. But it's actually a vice. They're more than just a worker; they're also a husband and also a father, and they're neglecting and abandoning the family in the name of a virtue, or the or the woman who does the same with motherhood, and so gives herself to the children that she neglects her husband. But I'm the best mom who does all the best things for my children. That's a virtue. Motherhood is a virtue, and it's good. But there are many mothers who so give themselves to caring, over caring for their children that they neglect other duties, but they justify it in their own hearts. You see how a virtue, motherhood, fatherhood, or or being a spouse, et cetera, are those virtues are neglected, and a different virtue of diligence or or motherhood, all the colors get mixed up, and the right things are called by the wrong names. What is truly pride can simply be uh, Self righteousness disguised as propriety. Well, I, I do the right things. It's not my fault if they don't do the right things. I do, I do the right things. What, what am I supposed to say? I do the right things, and I'm always there, and I'm on time, and I do this, and I do that. Uh, I'm not proud. It's just, it's a matter of fact, isn't it? So you justify your pride based on, well, me- measure me. I measure up. You may measure up, but you're proud about it. <laughs> you see, you're, you're painting a vice, pride, with virtue's colors. I just, I'm proper. Good for you. We need to unmask these vices. And we need to remember that you can coat a poison pill in sugar, it's still a poison pill. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They're nice and pretty on the outside, or a cup that's filthy, nice and pretty on the outside, but inside there's all kinds of filth and disgustingness. We need to unmask these vices when they're painted or disguised with virtue's colors and see more clearly and not give in to the world's lies. There's a a candidate for California that's all over advertisements that come my way who explicitly sells herself as I'm a single mom. I think to myself, that's not really the win that you think it is. You know, why are you presenting yourself as, you should admire me for being a single mom? Now, are there not women who have been abandoned and they have shown great strength as a single mother? Yes, we know what that is. But promoting yourself in this way, that's not a virtue. It's not a virtue. But the world wants women to think that way. If I'm the most independent and I give myself to my children, Those are the the female virtues, according to them. But they hide vices of hating men, neglecting husbands, neglecting the home, and so much more. And men do all the same things. The man, he works and he works and he makes money and he makes money. He gets paid and all these things. Yes, well, you have a family too. Brothers and sisters, we must unmask these vices. They are not virtues. Do not believe the deceivers' lie. Thirdly, the next device that Satan uses to entice the soul to sin is that he makes sin seem small and repentance easy. He makes sin seem small and repentance easy. little won't hurt. It's not a big deal. You can just repent afterwards. You can stop when you want to or if you have to. The deceiver wants you to see sin as a small thing. No big deal. And repentance as an easy thing. You can just do it. Of course you can. How can we overcome this lie of Satan, which is again similar to what he did in the garden. Just, just eat. It's Just eating fruit. Look, it's fruit. What's the problem? To overcome it, we need to measure sin by God's law, not our comfort level. We need to measure sin by God's law. All sin, no matter how simple it may seem, when compared to the infinitely holy God, is abominable and unacceptable and condemned by God by eternal punishment. Ask God what he thinks of sin that you think to be so small. What is his opinion of it? What does his law say about it? What does this sin look like in comparison to him and his infinite holiness? That's the true measurement that we need to look at, not Satan's, well, it's not so bad. When the Lord says, do not do this, you must not do it. When the Lord said, do not gather sticks, do not rest from all your labors, do not work on the day of rest, and a man goes out and says, I'm just gathering sticks. What was the response? What was the, how did God handle that, high-handed disobedience. The man was put to death. For gathering sticks, it's not about the sticks. It's about doing what God has forbidden when you know he's forbidden it. Well, gathering sticks, it's not about the sticks. You're measuring it by the thing itself and not the God who has forbidden the thing. You must measure sin by God's law. Children, especially teenagers, do this all the time. Well, why do I have to It's just a bedtime. What's the big deal? It's just some little thing that your parents make you do. It's not about that thing. It's about obeying your parents. Just as in the garden, it's not about the fruit, Eve. It's about listening to the word of God and obeying him. Satan will make sin seem small because he does not want you to relate it or compare it to God and his law. And devoid of its true context, that's sin's true context, God and his law, when you abstract sin from that context, we can make it look any way we want. If you're editing art on a computer or something like that, you can scale, you can zoom in, you can zoom out, make things look really small, make them look really big as you please. That's what we do with sin. But if God is measuring things, he'll set the scale. And said, so "You can't, you can't zoom out or in on this as you please. I'm telling you what the scale is here God said do not touch the ark of the covenant Uzzah as the cart is wobbling and he sees the ark possibly falling or being being moved he reaches out his hand to to touch the stumbling the, the cart when the oxen stumbled and the Lord strikes him dead for touching that which was forbidden David was angry with the Lord you'd say he he was just touching the ark. It's not about the ark so much as it is God has forbidden it. Don't reason your way out of this. But if I it's only you see it's so small. No. The Lord has said do not do this thing. The sons of Aaron in priestly service, they say let's let's offer something different. I have an idea. Let's worship God in this way. Let's offer this incense to the Lord. Let's, let's offer this fire unto God. It's not what he prescribed in his law, but, but let's, let's do this. The Lord strikes them dead. We think sin is small because we fail to see how great the holiness of God is. We also need to measure sin by the cross of Christ. Not just the law of God, but together with that, the cross is of Jesus Christ. If our sins are so small, then why did our Lord have to suffer and die in our place? Why did he have to endure such agony of body and soul to free us from our condemnation? If sins are so small, couldn't he just, you know, dip his toe in some wrath, dip his finger in some condemnation and be done with it because that's all it really deserves? Why did he endure the agony and torture that he did for us if sin is so small. You see, measured by the law of God and his holiness or measured by the cross of Jesus Christ and what he endured in our place, there is no small sin. But isn't it true, pastor, that certain sins, relatively speaking, have greater consequences in this life? Yes, that's true. And isn't it true, pastor, that, relatively speaking, certain sins are, are said to have a greater condemnation in hell? Yes, that's true. But in hell or in hell is still in hell. There is no small sin. But repentance is easy. No, it's not. Repentance is a grace. It's not a natural ability. We have natural abilities like walking. If I want to walk, but to the piano, I can. If I want to walk out the door, I can. It's a natural strength and ability that, that my body possesses and that I maintain with a certain level of fitness and eating. And so when I want to walk, I can walk. But repentance is not like that. It's not a natural ability that that I have. It's a grace. It's a spiritual gift that the Lord gives to his people. But to whom does he give repentance? To the proud and presumptuous person who says, I can repent when I want to? No, he gives repentance, the grace of repentance, to the humble and heartbroken. And so no, if you're presumptuous and proud, you can't just repent when you feel like it and want to. Because the Lord resists repentance. The proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, so long as you're thinking I can repent when I want to, you are the proud, not the humble. True repentance is given by God, sustained by God, and completed with God's help, not with a self-sufficient and presumptuous mindset that thinks I do the repenting when and where and how I want. Good luck. You're on your own. You're self-deceived, Or you're deceived by satan and you must not believe the deceivers lie it's just a little thing and repentance is so easy the next and final device that we'll cover this morning and just to communicate to you i had four more devices of the accuser and then four conclusions after that so we only got to about one-third of the sermon uh, in the spanish ministry but it works out fine because we also have the fellowship meal this morning. We'll be singing a hymn. The timing is fine. Are you in a hurry? I'm not in a hurry. And I get to choose the pace. So. What's the fourth device that Satan uses, Satan the deceiver uses to entice the soul to sin? Number four is to make proximity seem innocent. To make proximity seem innocent or put in maybe simpler terms to make us think that we can get close to sin without falling into it. To make us think that we can get close to sin without falling into it. You might say it this way, he takes away our fear of heights. He deceives us. It's not that it's not very far, you know. And you're not you're not gonna jump. You're just getting close to the edge. You're just stepping up to the edge of the cliff. You're not going to jump. You are not going to jump. You're just going to be close, to f- or you're not going to fall. You're not going to fall because you're not going to jump, and you're just getting close. You're not going to jump, and you're, you hear that, the repetition, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry about it. Go to the bar with your friends. You're not going to drink or get drunk. It's fine, they will, but I'm not going to. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 to 15 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, and pass on. You hear the emphasis? Avoid it, do not go on it, turn away from it, and pass on. Stay away. It's a lie to think, I can get close. Without falling, getting close is, is innocent. We could give a long list of examples that show that many a person would have been spared much misery if only they had stayed away from something they claimed they had no intention of seeing or doing or saying. We must not believe the deceiver's lie. What about your, your child who hangs out with the more disobedient children because they just want to see what they're going to do they just want to see, they just, they just can't help but be around those who will do things they wouldn't do themselves but over time they become more accustomed to those actions, over time they're invited to participate in those actions, over time they're drawn into those actions but at the beginning supposedly they had no intention, no I would never do those things then why are you spending time with those persons, you know what they do You can see what they do. You think proximity is innocent? It's not. And each person would have their own testimony of ways where they were hurt and they fell because they got close to something that they knew they shouldn't get close to. Well, brothers and sisters, these are four devices of the deceiver which he uses to entice us, and we've also talked about the ways in which we can resist, because that's Peter's call, isn't it? Resist him, firm in your faith. Stay away from the bait. Do not accept it. Do not see vices as virtues. They are vices. We must not think that sin is small or repentance is easy. We must not think that getting close is, is innocent or okay. We must have a fear of heights. We must have a fear of fire. We must have a fear of that which is inherently dangerous. And it's only the fool that gets as close as possible without sinning who will shortly fall. We need to be sober-minded and watchful. That's also Peter's command. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Because it's easy to write down in your notes, these are the devices of Satan. It's another thing to recognize them out in your personal life, to see them at home, to see them in the workplace, to see them out and about in the public or private spheres. It's much more difficult to see them in the wild. If you're being hunted or fished, you need to look for the bait, to look for the snare, to look for the the blind. Be sober-minded and be watchful. If we think that merely writing these devices down in our notes as sufficient defenses, you're wrong. You have to go out and look for these things and see them more clearly. Now, <clears throat> next week, we'll talk about Satan as the accuser because when Satan can't entice us to sin, he wants to steal our joy and our comfort and our peace. And so he accuses, he accuses, he accuses the believer He cannot steal our crown, but he can sure steal our comforts, or try to at least. And so we'll look at four devices that he uses to steal our joy and peace, as well as four conclusions after that. Hopefully that will just be one sermon. I don't want to drag things out. Uh, And then we'll continue with the other sermons planned on this subject, the the leash uh, and the loss uh, of Satan. So this is still under that broad heading of Satan's life, Satan as our adversary, the, the devices of Satan, the deceiver, And we need to remember that when we have fallen in these sins, that we do have a merciful God who will give grace to the humble, who will have mercy upon us and forgive us our sins. So when we are ashamed of ourselves and our sin, as we fall into these traps or have fallen into these traps, once you've fallen, Satan will lash you and lash you and lash you. But when we are fallen, we should not listen to him. We should listen to the precious words of the gospel that declare forgiveness for those who repent, those whose hearts are broken and who are penitent and humble before the Lord. And so to the degree that you have fallen in these things in the past and in the present, uh, be refreshed in the forgiveness of God and be sober-minded and watchful so that you do not fall into them again. The Lord will be with us and help us to resist Satan, the deceiver, and we'll continue to look at Satan, the accuser next week let's pray our father in heaven we thank you that we are not ignorant of satan's devices his designs his tricks and his traps but we pray that we would have more than a mere knowledge of our enemy we pray that you would give us battle experience We pray that though we may have scars, we would nevertheless have trophies. We pray that you would help us to fight valiantly, to resist because we believe in you and your power and in your promises. We also ask that you would help us to see more clearly when these devices and others are used to entice our souls to sin. We pray that you would give us a a clearer eye to see sin, as well as to see true virtue and holiness We pray that you would help us to measure sin according to your law and according to the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to be wise and to heed the warnings and the advice of brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as their correction. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to resist and fight. We pray that you would forgive us our sins, asking this in Jesus' name. Amen.